Okay, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We're going to read verse 18 to verse 34. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, allow me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury the dead. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he said unto them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he was come to the other side into the country of Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Are you come hither to torment us before the time? There was a good way off from them a herd of many swine feeding. So the devils besought him, saying, If you cast us out, allow us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said unto them, Go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine, and behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. And they that kept them fled and went their ways into the city and told everything and what was befallen to the possessed of the devils. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coasts." Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage this morning that you inspired Matthew to record, as he remembered and saw these things, Lord, that, Lord, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and cause us to see the things that we need to see and that you want us to see in this passage, Lord. Help us not to miss the truths that you have written down here for us to see. Lord, I pray that you'd be glorified and honored, that you would be known and understood this morning through this text. Thank you for this time to read it together, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Question. What does a foxhole, a group of panicking sailors, and a demonic herd of pigs all have in common? answer (laughs) the greatness of Jesus Christ now Matthew's goal in recording these three 
stories, incidents, is to show us who Jesus is. Just like his entire gospel has been written to show us who Jesus is. Jesus' identity. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that God has anointed, that he promised would come into the world to save us and to make, him, to make God known. Jesus is the Son of God. That's a mystery that before the foundation of the world, the Father and the Son were there. As John says in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that same Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father. Matthew writes to show us that Jesus is not just a man. Now, He is a man fully. He's not God that looks like a man. He is a man. But more than that, He is the Son of God. And Matthew also writes to show us that Jesus is our Savior, that he's the one who came to save us from our sins. If we just, if the book of Matthew ended in chapter 8, then we wouldn't really understand what Matthew is trying to communicate to us. But he writes this passage to show us who Jesus is. We've already seen he was born of a virgin. We saw at his baptism that the Spirit descended upon him. And the Father from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, of whom... I'm well pleased. We saw Jesus have victory over the devil in the wilderness when he was tempted three times to doubt the goodness of God. We saw Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said, I've not come to do away with the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. And he is setting himself in his teaching in opposition to the Pharisees and their teaching and practice. And the people are amazed at his authority. And we've also seen, Matthew showed us, some of the amazing miracles of Jesus, that he's going around healing everyone that comes to him and casting out devils. And now, today, in these three things, we're going to look at a unique side of Jesus. We're going to look deeper at his greatness in these three stories. So let's look at the first one. Number one, I I title the first one this, Jesus is greater than all earthly things. Now, it's fascinating that uh, this particular man comes to Jesus. Who is this man? He's a scribe. And usually, it's the scribes, typically, who are the opponents of Jesus, right? The scribes and the Pharisees are the ones who come to him, challenging him, trying to catch him in his words. And they're the ones who eventually plot his death. And Jesus has a lot of hard things to say to the scribes. But here we find a scribe, and this shows us that there were Pharisees and there were scribes that actually did believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. They did see something true in him. And this scribe seems very enthusiastic. He comes to Jesus with enthusiasm. Master, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. That's quite the devotion, isn't it? No one said that to me (laughs) before. Eli, I'll follow you wherever you go. So he comes with great enthusiasm. But what's more fascinating about this is Jesus' answer, which is very unenthusiastic, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that the man comes to Jesus with enthusiasm, and as A.V. Bruce points out, Jesus' saying is calculated to chill the scribe's enthusiasm. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus is not always excited about people wanting to follow him? Do you believe that is true? How come Jesus didn't say, great? See, we get the impression that anyone who comes to Jesus and says, I will follow you, Jesus is always saying, good. But not so. Jesus asks the question, why are you following me? Why do you want to follow me wherever I'm going? He's not just excited about people following him. Many times throughout the Gospels you see this. That Jesus actually withdraws himself from the people when they want him. They're chasing him in boats as he's sailing away. Or he discourages people and says, you're just following me because of the food. Right? Why are you following? Many people follow Jesus today for wrong reasons. Maybe it's exciting 
to be a Christian in their mind. Maybe it's exciting to follow Jesus. You know, they read the Bible. They see that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe it. They believe that Jesus did all these miracles and that he's coming again. And that's a very exciting thing. No doubt it is. But they say, I want to be on board with this super exciting thing that's more exciting than the Lord of the Rings, epic. So they come along for the excitement. They don't understand who Jesus really is. I think I was like that before I became a true Christian. They follow Jesus because he's interesting. Jesus is an amazing teacher. He taught with authority. And maybe the scribe said, I got a lot to learn and I want to follow along. People follow Jesus because of the miraculous then and today. Many miracles happen when people are hanging around Jesus, even today, right? And many people want to follow Jesus because they get to see all sorts of cool miracles and maybe they even get to participate in a miracle. Not that miracles are wrong because Jesus did them, but is that the reason why we follow Jesus? And on top of that, many people do follow Jesus because you get many earthly benefits from following Jesus. Or you either gain those benefits or you might lose them if you don't follow Jesus. And when I mean following Jesus, I don't mean believing the gospel. I mean hanging around with this guy named Jesus. Here in Utah, many people like to hang around Jesus. They talk about Jesus. They read about him in the Bible. And all their friends are doing it. Right? Or maybe you come to church because we have a potluck after church. Get some food. Or maybe if you don't maintain your Christianity, so-called, you might lose your family. Your family might reject you if you stopped following Jesus. And they don't want to lose their family, so they continue to go to church, and they continue to sing the songs, and they continue to uh, profess that they believe in him in order to maintain family relations. That's a very common thing. I mean, even in the evangelical community. Are you here at church because your family is here and you want to be, you know, a tight family and you want to have a common religion? Or are you here because you have understood who Jesus is and you believe in him and the truth of who he is? Why are you here? Friends, food, family, miracles, or for him, and for the truth concerning him. Now, our text doesn't say what the scribe's motivation is, but we can assume it wasn't good by Jesus' answer. Jesus does not tell the scribe not to follow him, but to evaluate his desire to follow him. Jesus says, in essence, okay, but if you're in this for the accolades... If you're in this for the fame and fortune, if you're in this for the mansions, don't bother. Why do you want to come with me? Does the scribe say, hey, this is great. I can be the disciple of this very famous man who's feeding the multitudes, doing miracles. He's probably going to become the king. I want to join myself to this man so that I can be like his right-hand man maybe. I can be a disciple of his. I can be someone great. And Jesus chills his enthusiasm by saying, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has not where to lay his head. That was suited to that man's desire and motivation. Perhaps he was thinking in terms of Jesus being a king. Jesus says, What the animals have, I don't even have. Now, this doesn't mean Jesus has no place to lay his head because we see him laying his head down in a boat in just a moment, right? What it means is he doesn't possess, he doesn't own any earthly home that's permanent. He's kind of a, a wanderer in this world, moving from place to place. No earthly treasures. You ever thought what would Jesus' will be like if he wrote a will before he died on the cross? He couldn't even say, my coat goes to Peter because his coat was taken by the Romans. He died naked on a cross with nothing. The only thing he could do was say, John, take care of my mom. Not very impressive, huh? 
So how is this about greatness? How is this about Jesus' greatness? If he says, what the foxes have and what the birds have, I don't even have. I don't even have a will that I can write. I'm going to die on a cross naked. You want to follow me? And the answer is, yes, this shows the greatness of Jesus, because even so, even though following Jesus doesn't come with all these earthly goods and things, it's still worth following Jesus. Amen? And this shows the greatness of Jesus Christ because it's worth following him even if you lose your family. It's worth following him even if you lose all your goods and your houses are spoiled and you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. If you lose everything, brothers and sisters, and gain nothing in this earth, it's worth following Jesus. Do you believe that? Supposing you start with things and you lose it all, it's worth it. And supposing you gain nothing. What if I were to tell you this morning, now, we don't live in a place like Syria, as Alan said, right? What if I were to tell you this morning, to be a Christian in this country at this time means you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose all the luxuries that you enjoy right now. You're going to lose your family and you're going to lose your own life. Will you follow Jesus? Do you see him as worth it? Ask yourself this this morning. Do you believe that? Now his greatness over earthly things is illustrated again by the second person that comes to him. This time, not an enthusiast, but a hesitator. Notice in verse 21, another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, allow me first to go and bury my father. So he's hesitating. He wants to come, but he's saying, I got something I need to do first. And Jesus says something that seems harsh to men. Now, burying your father seems like a reasonable and natural thing to do, don't you think? Jesus, let me first fix the sink. It's leaking. And there's water all over the floor. Jesus, my family needs me at this time. Um, I'd love to follow you, but can you wait for me? Jesus, I need to first bury my father. That's the only natural thing for me to do. Now, burying my father is a saying. The father isn't actually dead. But in the Hebrew culture, basically, I need to be here when my father dies so I can bury him. So I can't follow you right now. But Jesus teaches us an important lesson here. And Charles Erdman, professor in Princeton, writes on this, that the lesson is that nothing, and I say again, nothing, should be allowed to keep men from following Jesus Christ no matter how tender the tie or how sacred the duty. Do you believe that? Nothing should prevent you from following Christ no matter how tender the tie or sacred the duty. And this is the theme of Christ throughout the Gospels concerning family. You know, some, some say that Jesus is all about family. Now, there's some, obviously there's truth to the fact that family's of God and, and it's good and Jesus promotes family. But on the other hand, as you read in the gospel, Jesus said that I've come to bring a sword and that sword is going to divide family, father from son, mother from daughter. Jesus also said at one time when his mom and dad, or when his mom was knocking at the door with his brothers and he was teaching, he said, who are my mother and my brothers, but those who do the will of my Father who's in heaven. He's making a, a very important and magnificent statement there. Basically saying that those who do the will of God are actually more your family than even your physical relation. Amazing statement. And also he says, if anyone does not hate his own mother and father and forsake them for me, he's not worthy of me. 
Now, Jesus is not saying here that caring for your family is wrong or that bearing your father is wrong when he dies, as the Bible shows this is important, but that putting them above Christ is. And any time that you would be kept from believing in Christ or following Christ on account of your family or any sacred duty that you believe that you need to do is wrong. It's interesting, if you look in the Old Testament, that a Nazarite, are you all familiar with, with what I mean by a Nazarite? It was in the Old Testament, a Jewish person could dedicate himself for a season to, to God. He didn't cut his hair. Samson was a Nazarite. John the Baptist was a Nazarite. And he didn't uh, drink alcohol or anything of the grape, actually. And he devoted himself to God for a season. It wasn't permanent. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, it explicitly says that the Nazarite, when he's a Nazarite, is not to bury his own father if his father dies. You are not to defile yourself if you are consecrated to the Lord. No matter how tender the tie or sacred the duty, your own dad dies, you are the Lord's. And also, interestingly enough, this very same thing is applied to the high priests in the law of the Old Testament. When the high priest is functioning as the high priest and is consecrated to the Lord, even when the high priest's own father dies, he's not to go bury him, it says explicitly. And now Jesus is taking this and applying it to himself and following him. Isn't this amazing? Following Jesus is as noble and important to God as being a high priest. Nothing is to get in the way of your relationship with Christ, not even your own father dying and your need to bury him. And see, in this passage, we, we ought not apply it beyond what we should. Here, what is in view is the urgency of the time. Now, we're talking about physically following Jesus at this time. Jesus is calling men to follow him. He tells the man, look at verse 22, follow me. At that time, Jesus was physically on the earth. He was telling the man to follow him. And he says, hold on, let me first go bury my father. And he says, now is not the time. Don't you see that the Son of God is here? The Messiah is here. If there was, you know, in Solomon's day, the Queen of Sheba came and visited him. Now someone is greater than Solomon and people reject him. Concerning the urgency of the time, you need to let the dead bury the dead. Jesus here says that there are the spiritually dead. He makes that statement that there is such a thing as the spiritually dead. Paul picks up on that in Ephesians chapter 2. Dead in trespasses and sins. But today, it's a little bit different. Because Jesus isn't physically here and we can't just drop our nets and follow him, right? Because he's not physically here. But today, we would apply this to the fact that you need to believe in Christ and you need to become a Christian even if it costs you your, your own family. That would be the application for us today. Because, brothers and sisters, sadly, many people don't believe in Jesus and don't enter into salvation because of their own fathers and their own mothers. So Matthew shows us, Jesus is greater than all earthly things, houses, family, life itself. Number two, our next story. Jesus is greater than all nature. As we read, he gets into the boat, and what happens next? There arises a great storm, doesn't just say a little storm. Mark says a great storm of wind. Some think a hurricane arose. A great tempest in the sea, Matthew tells us. The NIV says a furious storm and that the ship was covered by the water. Now, I don't know if that means that the water was actually coming into the boat or that the waves were so high that the boat was beneath the uh, top of the water, the surface of the water when the, when the waves went up. Have you ever been in a boat when the waves were higher than the boat? I remember once I was, and it was actually on a lake, believe it or not. If you think, how can this happen on a lake? I've seen that. I've been on a boat in a lake, 
uh, it wasn't a very big boat, and I felt very afraid <laughs> because a storm came out of nowhere. We were fishing on this lake. It was a nice, beautiful day. We went out onto the lake to fish, and all of a sudden, a storm came in so much that as we were trying to get back to the shore, the water, the waves were so high that they were above the, the boat. <laughs> you couldn't see over until you know, the waves went down and you went up. <laughs> it was terrifying. And the dramatic contrast here is that while the boat is going up and down like this and the ship is beneath the waves and the wind is howling all around, Jesus is sleeping. The group of sailors are panicking and Jesus is sleeping. One thing we see in passing is that being with Jesus doesn't mean stuff like this won't happen, right? If you go fishing with Jesus on a lake, a storm might come. Notice it's the disciples who wake Jesus up, not the storm. Jesus is sleeping, and he would not have woken up had the disciples not aroused Jesus out of sleep. The experienced sailors thought they were dead. They said, Lord, we perish. This is beyond us. The storm is going to end our lives right here. And Jesus, still lying down, says, Why are you afraid Oh, you of little faith. Notice he's still lying down. He arises after he says that. So you can just see him. You can really see the picture of the story. He's laying there. He's sleeping. He's like, Lord, we're going to perish. And he's like, why are you afraid? You of little faith. And he arises and he does this absolutely stunning and amazing thing. He rebukes the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. So we go from a great storm not a little storm, to a great calm, not a little calm. It doesn't just slowly recede a bit so that they can now manage it. It's completely calm. Can you imagine? No wind, and the waters that were raging are suddenly serene. Now, there's no doubt about it, brothers and sisters, that this is one of the most remarkable miracles in the Bible. This is on the level of the parting of the Red Sea, where God actually took water and separated it. In the Old Testament, it teaches us that God alone is said to have power over nature and over the seas. In the book of Job, when God finally shows up to Job and speaks of his greatness and his power in creation, God says this to Job. Who defined the boundaries of the sea as it burst forth from the womb? And as I clothed it with clouds and thick darkness, for I locked the sea behind barred gates, limiting its shores, I said, thus far and no farther will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. God says that. To the proud and raging sea. The Bible makes it much, much of the sea. It says those who go out on the sea know the power of the Lord. Because when you're out on the sea, brothers and sisters, you feel totally helpless when a storm comes up. That sea is greater than you are. And it is God who says to the proud waves, you must stop here. Psalm 89, verse 8 and 9. O Lord God of hosts, you rule the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, you still them in the Psalms. No wonder the disciples marveled, what manner of man is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Notice Jesus didn't pray to the Father to stop the sea and the wind. That's what happened in the Old Testament in some people, right? Some people will pray and the weather will change because God will change the weather. They wouldn't say they were the ones who did it, right? They're like the apostles. A miracle took place and they say, it's not by our power or might that we did this miracle. It's by God. We're just men like you. Jesus didn't pray. Jesus didn't say, Lord, please stop the wind and the sea. He, he himself rebuked the wind and the sea and told them to be still. And the wind and the sea, it says, obeyed him. Isn't that amazing? The wind in the sea is never going to obey you. But it obeys him. Because Jesus is greater than nature. Because Jesus is God. Clearly, the creator 
of heaven and earth, as the Bible teaches us. All things were created by him and for him. He sustains all things, and he rules over all of nature. As we sing in that hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature. Jesus Christ is greater than nature and is in control. And this story not only teaches us this about Jesus, that he is God, it also teaches us about trusting in God to take care of you. Because why were the disciples afraid, according to Jesus? Oh, you of little faith. Why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? This teaches us that our fears, no matter what they are, you might never be in a boat with storms, but have you ever had fears before? Real bad fears? Anyone ever panicked before? Maybe sometimes we have little fears and we have big fears. Our fears are related to our lack of faith in God. This is not talking about just faith in general, like just believe in yourself or have positive thoughts. But we would have less fear if we had more faith in God who's taking care of us and who's looking out for us and who's in control. Amen? This is not saying we should ignore problems. The boat was about to sink. Something needed to be done. But we can face these problems calmly and with peace, knowing that God is for us. And the good news, brothers and sisters, is even though it was foolish for them to doubt, even though they shouldn't have been afraid because Jesus was with them, they could still go to him in that fear. They told Jesus we're going to die. Isn't that interesting? Can you imagine telling God, God, I'm going to die. And God still will take care of you even if you're afraid. Because, brothers and sisters, that's the whole point of God being good. As we've, we've talked about so many times, the gospel reveals to us the goodness of God. And God isn't only good when you believe. God is just good objectively. And it's for us to believe that he's good. Jesus will hear you and help you even if you have little faith. That's the whole point. But may we have faith in a big God so that we can trust him no matter what. Because honestly, most of our problems aren't as bad as the problem they were in just then. They were going to perish. They were going to physically die. And he saved them. Number three, third story. Jesus is greater than all demons. All demons. This is one of the most remarkable stories in the New Testament. You've read this before, I imagine. Isn't this an amazing story? that he casts thousands of demons into a bunch of pigs that run down a cliff and perish in the water. The description of these men in Mark and Luke is even more ferocious than the description of them in Matthew. In Mark and Luke, it tells us that these men had no clothes on. These men had oftentimes been bound with chains. They were so wild that the cities around them tried to subdue these people so that they wouldn't be hurting others. And they would break these chains asunder. They were so violent and fierce that it says... In our text here, notice in verse 28, they were so exceedingly fierce. They lived in the tombs. They howled night and day. They had no clothes on. They cut themselves with stones. And they were so violent, it says at the end of verse 28, that no man might pass by that way. Because those guys lived there, that part of the country just became off limits and nobody went over there. And it's interesting because it was right along the shore. They were so fierce no one went around them. I read a really interesting story of a man named Elliot Warburton. He was an Irish traveler and adventurer. In 1843, he left the United Kingdom and he traveled throughout the Middle East and he wrote about his, his, his travels and his stories and it was a big sensation in, in his day. But actually at one uh, point in his travels when he was over in, I think, Syria, he actually met a madman who was dwelling in tombs. Very interesting. He was on a cliff. As he describes the story, he was on his horse. It was midnight, and he was on a cliff with a precipice behind him. And there was, some, there was a cemetery that he was by, 
And all of a sudden, he saw a naked madman who was fighting for a bone with some wild dogs. And when the madman saw him, the madman dropped the bone and ran straight at him. (laughs) And the horse went back, and he was afraid that he was going to fall off the cliff. And the madman grabbed the bridle of the, the horse, not to protect the horse, but I think to grab the horse and pull it in for maybe his own purposes. Elliot Warburton wrote, A madman is not a pleasant opponent anywhere. But on a dangerous precipice at midnight, far from all human aid, he becomes the most formidable opponent one can encounter. (laughs) He said he almost shot the man, but he hit him with the gun and rode off. Scary. A madman is a formidable opponent anywhere, isn't it? And that's why no one would go around these guys except Jesus. No one would pass by that way but the Son of God. And where no one else, where everyone else stayed away, Jesus went. And did you know that Jesus was not afraid of these guys? One bit. Do you think Jesus was afraid of them? Would you be afraid? I'd probably be afraid. Two naked guys that are really strong and can rip chains apart and they're not sane up here, you can't reason with them. <laughs> <laughs> You can't reason with these guys. That's my only weapon. (laughs) Jesus was not afraid of them. Just as he had not been afraid of the storm, Jesus was not afraid of these men one bit. In fact, it was the demons who were afraid of Jesus. Right? Can you imagine? Every other person that went by that way, fear was struck into their heart. I'm sure even if you hadn't seen them, but you were just passing by that way, you would be full of fear and wanting to get around. And when you hear their cry, it would strike terror into your heart. If you see them coming, you'd run. And here it's the opposite. The tables are turned. They meet Jesus. Maybe they think it's just some easy prey. And they come to him and they realize it's the Son of God. And they call him the Son of God. What have we to do with... Now they're kind of like, we don't have anything to do with you, Jesus. The Son of God? See, they, don't, they see, he's, what manner of man is this? Not just a man. We don't have anything to do with you, Jesus. Just leave us be. You didn't come to torment us before the time. We hope. Before the time. Showing us that there is a time, and the demons know it, when the devil and his angels will be tormented forever and ever. And their time will come to an end. And the demons know this, brothers and sisters. God has appointed a time. The only reason the devils and demons exist on the earth today is not because God is not mighty enough to stop them. The demons believe and tremble, James says. The demons are terrified of God. And the only reason they're still around is because God has appointed a time when he's going to to end their reign and he's going to torment them forever. God has appointed a day when he'll judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he's appointed, Christ Jesus. I think human beings who are in rebellion against God, who have not believed the gospel and who are under his wrath also ought to tremble knowing that there is a time when God will judge them as well. The message of the New Testament is to flee from the wrath to come. You can escape the wrath of God, unlike these demons. May we grasp this truth that the demons are afraid of Jesus. That the devil is defeated and his time is running short. In Luke it says that the demons asked Jesus to let them go into the pigs rather than into the abyss. The word abyss is used. It's the same word in the book of Revelation where it talks about the demons coming out of the abyss or God throwing Satan into the bottomless pit in the abyss. So take that for what it's worth. I think that what we learn here is that there are things we may not understand that are beyond our understanding. 
the demon said, instead of, throwing us, instead of throwing us into the abyss, let us go to the pigs. Is there such a thing as the abyss? I assume there is. Why pigs? I don't think we should read too much into this. The pigs were the closest thing nearby. Jesus surely would not have sent them into another human being, right? If you're going to cast us out, send us into that guy, right? <laughs> Why the pigs at all? Why not just let us go from this man? And I think that uh, to not read too much into this, that if Jesus had cast out the, the demons from the man then they would have wandered around, as it said, looking for another place to dwell, and they probably would have went to the pigs anyway. So it wasn't like they were just saying, send us to the pigs. They were basically saying, let us go to the pigs instead of to the abyss. It's not time to torment us yet, so you've got to let us go, right? Well, instead of tormenting us and sending us to the abyss, just let us go and we'll just go into those pigs over there. How's that sound, Jesus? And Jesus said with one word, go, and not in Matthew does it say, but thousands of demons, Mark and Luke tell us that they said, we are many, we are legion. Thousands of demons with one word, go. Jesus didn't pray. Jesus commanded them to go. And thousands of demons left these two men and went into this herd of pigs. And the scene is terrible. It says in our text, they went into the herd of swine, and behold, the, her the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place. Have you, ever, have you ever descended a steep hill? And if you're not careful, you could fall headlong, right? And you could tumble and do somersaults down this hill because it's so steep. And that's how I imagine the pigs. They're running down this hill, full speed ahead, flipping over one another, breaking bones, and falling into the water and drowning. A horrible picture. Just that really gives us a visual picture of how horrible and violent and disgusting these demons are. If you go to the Sea of Galilee today, to the south southeastern shore, you will still find sharp cliffs that lead into the sea and tombs in those in that country, in that in the, in those hills, tombs that still exist there today. J.C. Ryle makes three points about this story. Number one, there is a devil and there are demons and it's real and it's horrible. Do you believe in supernatural evil, spiritual wickedness in high places? Jesus did. Number two, the devil and his demons and that spiritual wickedness is defeated and limited and God is in total control of them. There's no power struggle. It's not that the devil wins some battles someday and God wins some battles another day and God's ultimately going to win. God is in total control and whatever the demons do, they have to get permission from God to do. And one day, God will deliver this world from evil. We need not be afraid of them when we realize that they're defeated and that they're terrified of our God. And lastly, Ryle says that it is Jesus who is our deliverer from the devil and his demons. That Jesus Christ is the one who saves us from evil and delivers us from evil. Brothers and sisters, if you do not have Jesus, if you do not believe in him, if you are not his and he doesn't know you, then you need to come to him. You need to believe in him and he will deliver you from evil. Maybe you've been tormented by evil. Maybe you've been tormented by demons. But Jesus is the one who can set you free. Some people ask, well, what about the pigs? That's a whole lot of money. That's a whole huge business that's perished. Some people question the ethical nature of this story. Was Jesus careless? Was he thoughtless? How was someone's huge corporation? <laughs> right? Was it ethical for Jesus to have done that? And the answer is that for Jesus, 
the liberation of those two men took precedence over all economic loss. If Jesus was to deliver those guys, those demons would have probably gone into those pigs. And Jesus said, yep, the loss of a company is worth the deliverance of two men from the power of the devil. And that shows you the beautiful love of God for sinners and what his priorities are, right? Is it so in our life also? Do we have the attitude of Jesus that the salvation and deliverance of people is more important than all earthly things? No matter how great, because that would have been a great loss. And sadly, the people of the town didn't, didn't have the same attitude when they saw that the man was in his right mind or the men were in their right mind and clothed. They said, Jesus, get out of here. You've caused this great loss and we'd rather you not be around. Now, these weren't Jews. They were Gentiles. But even so, Paul Philip Levertov, actually a Jewish Christian, wrote, All down the ages, the world has been refusing Jesus because it prefers pigs. Brothers and sisters, God loves sinners more than the buck. And God's desire for you is for you to be saved from your sins, for you to be delivered from evil, and for you to be clothed and in your right mind. You know that God wants you all, each one of us, myself included, to have a sound mind, to have a healthy mind. This is what God wants for us. And God gives us salvation and deliverance and sanity through Jesus Christ. In closing this morning, we've looked at these three stories Matthew has shown us, which focus on what they reveal about Jesus, the greatness of Jesus. He is greater than all earthly things. He's worth following and believing, even if you lose absolutely everything and gain absolutely nothing besides him in eternal life. He's greater than all nature, and he bids us to believe in him and to have no fear because he's with us. And he's greater than all demons and all evil in this world. He casts out thousands of demons with a word, and they obey him and they tremble. And he can save you also. Jesus Christ is God who came to save us not only from storms and from demons but also from our sins. And brothers and sisters, as we've been looking at the greatness of Jesus Christ, I just want to say this, that the true greatness of Jesus doesn't necessarily consist in him stilling storms and casting out demons. But the true greatness of Jesus is found in a passage as an example in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, it says that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that even though he was rich, he was God, he was powerful and mighty and had everything, even though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we who are poor might become rich. And that is the true greatness of Jesus not just in his ability to command the elements and the evil spirits, but in his ability to look upon sinners who are poor, morally bankrupt, deserving of hell, with all the demons screaming in his ears, they've broken the law, they deserve to go to hell, let us at them. And he looks upon us in love and he chooses to humble himself and to come out of heaven to the death of the cross to bear our own sins in his body, even though he trembled before that. Because he loved us. And because he doesn't want us to perish. He doesn't want anyone here in this room to perish. And the true greatness of Jesus lies in his grace and in his love. And we know it's great because we ourselves, that's the hardest thing for us to to walk in, isn't it? True greatness is not found in how strong your biceps are or how many mountains you can throw into the sea. But true greatness is is found in humility and service to the most unworthy. His death reveals that God is great. 
that God's love is greater than you can even possibly imagine because he loves sinners and paid the entire price for them and said it is finished and now invites us to come and believe in him and take from him all that we need, eternal life, salvation, and sanity from him. So, do you see the greatness of Jesus? And what does that greatness consist? Why do you follow Jesus? Trust in him. He is able to save you, and he is worth it all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son the express image of your person. And we see that in his power over nature and over demons and in his infinite worth. And Lord, thank you that we can see you through your son as love and as grace. And thank you that we can come to you no matter how sinful we feel and unworthy. And we can know that no matter how great our sin is, no matter how we feel that we are condemned, that your grace is greater than all of our sin, that you're able to save us, that you're mighty to save. Help us to always remember that you are great and that you are all that we need and that you can help us and save us. We worship you, we thank you, and we praise you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.